you know, we haven't done a read-along in a long time. So long. And as I was rereading this book, I was like, this is the best way to get back into it. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the full banana, as we would say. (laughs) The full banana. I had totally forgotten how full of a banana it was. I mean, I remembered some of the stuff, but then... But then there's more. I mean, look, when a book begins the way this one begins, I mean, there's so much to unpack. If you had just had me read this book cold and then asked me to guess its publication date, I would have said 1987. Yes, that (laughs) is part of its joy, I think. I think so, too. Part of its charm. This is Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And when we say we deep dive books sometimes <laughs> and read them and talk about them, this is exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. So this book is Stealing Midnight by Tracy McNish. This is her only book. No, there are four. Oh, there are four. This is her last, her final book. Got it. It was published in 2008, came out from Kensington. And then, as far as I can tell, she disappeared. Well, because she wrote this, like, perfect thing and was like, I've ascended to a higher plane. But, like, <laughs> I'm not wrong that it was clear. There are clearly other books set. Oh, yes. I'm this. very upset. Like, where? Okay. The brother's in love with someone who... The hot, sexy cousin. There are plenty of people. There are twins. I'm sorry. We did a twins episode, but I don't make the rules. If you write a hero who is a twin, his brother gets a book. That's how it goes. Yeah. Anyway, Tracy McNish, we are here for you at Fatamates. And if you decide you want to write that other book, we will buy it. We'll buy it. That's true. So we picked this book because a number of you all out there came to us. And by a number, I mean like more than five, less than ten. <laughs> came to us and said, so we're, you know, extrapolating it out. Like yeah. when you, that means to us, like that's sure. 5% of you. <laughs> came to us and said, uh, what about gothic romances? And the truth is there aren't that many gothic romance i mean here no there are many 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 gothic romances from back in the days of woman on a cover with a creepy old house back when covers used to tell you things but what's interesting about this is that there are not a huge number of gothic romances that are published today yeah um you know i think about like Sally Thorne's Angelica Frankenstein was sort of an homage to the gothic, although I'm not sure. It was certainly gothic, but it was very funny in a way that this book is not at all funny. Oh, yeah. This book is very serious about all its business. This book takes itself very, very seriously in a way that Sally's book kind of knows what it's up to. Fair. And then I was, as I was rereading it, I was thinking the same thing that you you said, where it was like, is this really gothic? Or is it just, like, super old school? It starts out as a gothic and then transitions to old school. That's how it felt to yes. me. Because also, this is the Regency. Well, it's a little bit pre... I think it a little bit predates the Regency. It's eight, 1806. Um, but, man, if you told me it was medieval, I would have been like, that checks out. Absolutely. Like, well, sure. She was sewing her own dresses together. It was fine. <laughs> In her like creepy Frankenstein doctor, Doctor Frankenstein house, 
Okay, before we go into the book, I think it would actually be a nice idea for you, Sarah, to actually explain, like, what makes a gothic a gothic. Like, I mean, we've talked about it, but, like, what does that Mm -hmm. mean? So the cornerstone of a gothic romance is actually nature, right? Like, there's – it's – and gothic – Gothics tend to be really steeped in the natural world. There's a lot of description of like the way th- the way the world looks. The they're often set in big houses on hills. Like there is usually there's sometimes a storm or like then there's like a whole genre of southern gothic which is set like in I don't know what do we call those places in the south that have lots of marshlands like swamps and marshes swamps and things right. like okay. a real where the the vibe of a gothic you know you're reading a gothic if it feels like the house or the or the surrounding area the the natural world around the characters feels like it's breathing and often in horror in gothic horror and also i would think like all gothic romance has an element of a perversion of nature right so mm-hmm. when we talk about like gothic in general you know it wouldn't be far afield to say that like the frankenstein echo that's running sort of through this at the very beginning i mean it's clear that doctor is supposed to be like a a dr frankenstein on you know well kind of in the reverse in a way because he's her father is obsessed with understanding why people die the soul isn't he searching for right because her brother died as opposed to in victor frankenstein is trying to bring something to life right so i mean the decay here was actually really interesting like you know i mean from the jump it was kind of i think an interesting take on all of that a twist so there is always a sense of like Something being unwell, something being like not quite right in a gothic, something haunting in the background. And so I think that I think that is where we begin with this book, because it begins with resurrectionists, which uh, is not a religious term. <laughs> it is it means grave robbers. Right. Yeah. It, and it begins with this. Uh, we we begin with grave robbers who have pulled a fresh body from a grave. Yes. And they know – so, okay, grave robbing is illegal. It's illegal now too. <laughs> but it was like super duper illegal then. Like you could be – you could be killed for yeah. robbing a grave because like there was a lot of – I'm really going to do this wrong and like somebody out there is going to be yelling at their radio. But there was a lot of – the radio. I know. I was like – well, it's very gothic of you to call it the radio, so I like so, it. Let's just go with it. Um, but so um, there was a very real sense that, like, if the body was disturbed once it was in the ground, then uh, it might there might be a problem. Like, it might not get to where it was ultimately going, the soul. Right. So you don't mess with bodies in the ground. You certainly don't deface them. And that's what grave robbers were doing. So this is also simultaneous with... This book is simultaneous along, uh, or the work of uh, the the heroine's father in this book trying to find the soul is uh, happening alongside a growing body of anatomists and doctors who 
you know, surgeon doctors who are trying to understand how bodies work. Yeah, just like anatomy, right? And it is a tricky thing to do that if you don't have access to bodies. Right. So if it's illegal for you to cut open a dead body because it destroys, you know, something churchy is happening. I'm so sorry, everyone. Please understand (laughs) that I do, you know, whatever. But the if it's illegal to do that work, then you can't understand, like, how does a liver work? How do the literal muscles in this body connect to each other? What are we taught? Like, how do you get cancer out? Like, these doctors are really trying to understand how to heal bodies and how the body works so that they can keep people alive longer and they can't access these. They can't do it without committing crime. So what they do, bodies are worth a pretty punny. And these grave robbers would go and they would dig up fresh graves. The fresher the body, the higher the value. And I mean, like a fresh body, a body as fresh as the hero in this book. I mean, like, A plus fresh, (laughs) but a body as close to fresh as the hero in this book, like just interred that morning, was worth like a month's rent, maybe more. So this was worth it. This was a job that was, yes, you could get into big trouble, but if you could do it, if you had a line to somebody who was going to pay you for anybody that you brought them, which is what the setup of this book is, you could live a happy life or at least a life Selling bodies to scientists. Now, we've, I believe, talked about this briefly before because is it not the case that Derek Craven from Dreaming of You had a short stint in this? Oh, I think so. In this business? Yes. So everything comes back to Derek Craven with us, everybody. It's fine. Yeah, poor Derek. He hated it. These people who are doing it on, in this book don't seem to hate it. They're like, whatever, fine. So what happens is the grave robbers show up at the door right and knock on the door yeah, like in the, the middle back of the door night. of a dilapidated estate like we are made so that here's the house on the hill right like they come up it feels very dark like tim burton has definitely directed this movie right we've come we're coming around the back of the house they knock on the door and a woman opens the door and they are terrified of her because she because she works for her father right Everyone in town thinks she's a witch. She has really dark hair with, like, this streak of white. You know, she's dressed really strangely. She, like, you know, scurries around because, you know, this is, like, her job is essentially she's almost – she's been made into, like, an indentured servant, right, to her father. Like Her father has treated her horrifyingly bad. Yes. Um, that I mean, we should say from the beginning, if you have not read this book and you are thinking about reading this book, like, this is a dark book. Like, terrible things happen over the course of this book. And you should, you know, I don't know, check content warnings, though. Who knows who's how many people have read this book on Goodreads? We've been telling people for three months to read this book, so somebody's been. <laughs> Hopefully someone has done the job. We don't know her place right in the household we just know that she's like answering the door and it turns out that her father is like literally insane right he has been driven to insanity at the loss of his son and his wife abandoned him and she's been made into like a servant to him to the point where she cannot leave right like he has essentially imprisoned her in this house 
And well, she has, we are told she had, she one time attempted to leave. Yes. And he trapped her in a cage yeah. and left her in the dungeon in the dark for the rats to feed on for yeah. a day. And the I mean, sick the dogs on her awful. to catch her, right? Awful. And there's also another man who is his helper who is a threat to her, right? She's constantly locking doors because he's been like watching her. And, um, but he is like a total drunk. So th- this is sort of the setup is they bring the body downstairs and her father is – I'm sad to report to all the Winterborn fans out there. His name is Reese. Yeah, they're Welsh. Cut, like cuts into the sternum and blood wells up and everyone freezes because dead bodies do not bleed. <laughs> that You need a heart to pump that out. And so they realize he's alive. And this is like the best inciting incident of any book I've pretty much ever read, right? Because all of her determination to leave, then like the bravery to do it essentially comes because she's like, I have to save this man. Because the father's basically like, get out of here to her. She's like, he's alive. Right. And And he's like, he won't be for long. And intending to kill this man. Like, he's here. Everyone thinks he's, I mean, it's a perfect crime, right? Everyone already thinks he's dead. So, and then she, of course, finally gets up the courage to, she has a gun. I mean, she she has, what's amazing about the setup here is she has all the tools to have done this before. But she did not have the courage. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Liza Snow, author of Obedience, the first book in the Ties That Bind series. I'm super excited about this because it is romantic suspense, and I feel like the whole world is moving like slightly toward romantic suspense, which makes Agreed. me very excited. So this one is romantic suspense, but set in a circus. Like Cirque du Soleil. Right? Cool. So the heroine, Cassandra, grew up absolutely mesmerized by the circus and she her parents the day before they died took her to see the greatest silk aerialist in the world Chandler Moreau and she was instantly obsessed with this man and with the act and with the circus and all she wanted to do was become a skilled aerialist also so that she could perform with them, but also, you know, obviously with him because she was obsessed with him. So she did. And he decided he when he met her, he decided to take her under his wing as a mentor. But and, you know, this is my whole thing, Jen. He's not just going to be your teacher. (laughs) (laughs) So you have student teacher, age gap, right? But also like these like dark mafia elements, right? Romantic suspense. So Mm -hmm. this book, and I mean, I'm sorry, any book that is part of the Ties That Bind series is probably going to be real sexy. What's even cooler about this is there is a full cast audiobook um, complete with sound effects and multiple actors. And if you stay tuned at the end of today's episode, you can get a taste of the Obedience audiobook and its full cast. You can get Obedience at Kindle Unlimited or on audio. Thanks to Liza Snow for sponsoring this week's episode. There's like a bit of a pause where we then go to his brother, his twin who is basically like 
one of my favorite things about twins, I would know if he was dead. I wrote that down. <laughs> I would have felt it. He can't be dead. I would have felt it. Look, Wonder Twins are my favorite. Yeah. His name is whatever the guy's name is in that movie. Padraig. I don't know how to pronounce it. Definitely some – it's not pronounced like that in Gaelic, but – I watched that entire movie and still don't know because I hated it. So whatever. What? Oh, the Banshees of Inisherin. Not a fan. It would that movie to me would be like being trapped with these two knuckleheads in the basement the entire time, right? <laughs> You're like, get me out of here. All right. Anyway, um, so his brother is like, I know he must be alive, and that's where we get the details about what brought Aiden to Which is, this. I was gonna say it's it's. What's also a little bit gothic, like the other piece of gothic is it has to edge up. It doesn't have to be paranormal. There doesn't have to be anything paranormal going on. But there has to be a little thread of the impossible. Yeah, right. Yeah, for and sure. I would know if he was dead on top of all this other stuff makes it feel. Right. And so it's through his brother that we get the the essentially the exposition about like what happened to him, right? So it was he was on a ship, illness took over the ship. M- many, many of the people on the ship died of this illness and were well, literally they were tossed thrown overboard. overboard. But because of his Aiden's wealth and his status, they were like, well, we're gonna we're gonna roll up and bury this one. We left out the fact that Aiden and Patrick are twins and they are sons of a duke. They're almost 30. But their parents have never told anyone, including them, which one of them is the older one because they wanted the boys to essentially grow up as equals, not as the heir and the spare. So here's what I want to say about this, bringing it back to 2023. This is apparently a thing that people with twins sometimes choose to do. Um, I have a friend with twins and she – everybody does know who the oldest is, but there's a growing body of research, everyone – pause while Sarah puts on her child development research hat. Um, There's a growing body of research that suggests that even with twins, knowing who the oldest child is makes people treat them differently. Like, so the oldest actually becomes a kind of more responsible, older child. And the youngest, even if it's by a minute and a half, uh, tends to become more, you know, middle child or younger child. Interesting. Um, but if they are not told, if no one is told who is the oldest and who is the youngest, they are they do not tend toward developing these kinds of characteristics, which is really interesting. I'll find a study. We'll put it in show notes. But it's actually not uncommon in 2023 for parents of twins to not tell anyone, including the twins, who the old, older child is. That's fascinating. OK, anyway, here's a book that's not afraid of a lot of plot. Right. Like, and we're going to unload all of it. Three separate plots going on at the same time. Yes. And so the other plot is that Aiden has a betrothed back in England. Her name's Mira. And he. She's terrible. And she. Well, that's the other thing that makes her feel really old school is that she's like terrible and evil. Yeah. I mean, I mean so she's th- after the title. She's yes. after the money. She doesn't like. Yeah. She, she's conniving. She's, got, she, she's a yeah. bit of a caricature. But it's weird because it didn't. It didn't land the same way that that sort of evil other woman usually lands with me. And I think it's because she's so present. Like. She has so much screen time that by the end of it, you're like, oh, she is just a villain. Like, this isn't just like 
a caricature. And the dad are both villains. And I think the other thing is it really is also very much a like as a real English teacher, I don't know how else to say it, like a foil, a foil Mm. for Olwen herself, right? Who has this father who has done nothing but neglect her and terrorize her. And yet she has like found her inner strength because she has nothing and no one. And Mira, who has is spoiled rotten, right, by her father, and how this has turned her into essentially like the ultimate bad apple, right? So there's all of this conversation in the book as well about parenting, right? You know what yep. I mean? Like what kind of parents are you and and who your relatives are? And, you know, this is not a book about found family. This is a book about family family. Yeah. Olwen saves Aiden, right? She, like, one of my favorite parts is she's kind of, like, we're, like, okay, so she, like, brandishes a gun at her dad. She locks him down in the basement or whatever. You're kind of, like, how's she going to get away from that other bad guy who's the drunk? And it's, like, my favorite thing ever is he's basically, like, how are you going to get rid of me? And she's, like, here. And she hands him a bottle of whiskey because she knows he's (laughs) such a drunk that he'll be, like, just drink himself silly, right? It's perfect. And she has a whole plan where she's not super, like, she doesn't want to truly harm these people she's still like weirdly deeply loyal to her crazy dad who is i mean like truly deserves to die in that dungeon for his behavior but she just can't get there so she has a whole setup that we are shown immediately that she's incredibly clever she has a whole plan for these two to get out of the dungeon when they need to right and then what she does is she like you know drags Aiden into this cart, hooks it up to their one horse and like not even gallops away, slowly walks away. Yeah, right. it's like an old hag of a horse. Right off the bat, I was really interested in Olwen as a character, right? Because it, again, she did the hallmarks of the old school part, right, kick in pretty fast. So she's really alone in the world, right? Yes, she has her father, but he's, like I said, literally, like I'm not using crazy in a pejorative sense. He is he is mentally ill, right? His, his son's death broke something in his brain and he is, you know, he has been really terrorizing her and, and, you know, they are living in squalor and they're like all of the money is going towards the bodies, like the basic upkeep of, the house and food, like all of that is really dependent on Olwen. So she is, um, you know, they travel a little bit, two days. He wakes up eventually, right? He wakes up and he's like, oh, but can we talk about, okay. So we missed the part where, so before the father dissects him, she draws him nude and she's like, oh, my God, this dude looks better than any dead body I've ever drawn before because he's not dead. Spoiler. (laughs) Um, And then they get – they start traveling and she is, like, tending to him because he's in some kind of coma. I mean, it's really unclear. It's sort of waved away. Sure. He had a fever and now he's asleep. Right. And so he wakes up – So. But as he's, like, coming out of the fever, there's, like, one night where there's cold, and so they have to get together. They have to, like, sleep together to, like, stay warm. And she has a lot of touching him. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of touching him that is not appropriate. No. I mean, I I felt like this was the part that was really 
interesting to me, again, and I think this is like part of the like Mira part, right, too, is this is like a book that really like grapples head on with the question of like consent when it comes to like how we treat men and their bodies. Right. Well, because let's talk about what Mira does. So the reason that I mean, should we get to. Well, like maybe let's okay. finish the plot yeah, and then pop, get to right. Mira. So here's the plot. It's actually like they escape and go to his house. She tells yeah, him. Yeah, his brother, because his brother does not believe he is dead. So goes to get the body, goes to find the body, finds the body, or is told, like, goes to, like, the morgue or whatever. And the morgue is like, uh, we buried him in a grave, in the grave. Like, then he has to go find the grave robbers. And then he, you know, then he realizes, like, the, he's alive, right? And so then he chases them and he finds them. And instantly, what's amazing is, so she's brought clothes for him that are, like, raggedy, like, old clothes. And his brother brings him, like, his ducal finery. And I love that moment so much because he, like, changes clothes and she sees him and she's like, oh, no, he is so far out of my league. <laughs> this is so much going on in this book. I know. The couple of nights they'd spent together before Padraig finds them, they make a pledge to be just totally honest with each other. Yeah. Wait, oh, I have something to say about this that people out there who know about Arthurian legend might be interested in because Olwen's last name is Gawain, like Sir Gawain, you know, Knight of the Round Table, whose entire story is really about honesty. Like, he's deeply loyal. He's all chivalry. He's, like, arguably, like, one of Arthur's best knights, right? Like, he's so loyal to Arthur. And there's so much about his myth or his story that is sort of echoey in here. There are all these kind of very noble virtues that are in Olwen, so... I mean, she doesn't really have any illusions that this is going to last, but there's something like to have someone to talk to, right? It's like this, yeah, right? I mean, th this these were some of my favorite scenes of the book. And I think also, right, like really do the job of showing how emotion, how conversation is the hallmark of emotional intimacy in a romance. Yep. Right? Yes. And so she – and there's a way that he's honest with her too, but he's not honest about his real position. He's given her essentially her his – name. Well, it's the name his brother calls him or his family right. name, right? And so she was sort of like – really felt like, okay, at least I could – I have this – whatever this was, I had this with this man. And when she watches him literally like put on being the aristocracy, right – she is so pissed, right? I mean, she is yeah. angry and she's like, you lied to me. You lied. Right? You, we promised to be honest with each other. Like, what are you doing? And and she's just like, let me go. And he, of course, cannot let her go because now he is in this bind, right? Where he literally like knows Something about being with Olwen has made it clear to him that Mira was is not the right person for him. But what's done is done. They're betrothed. You can't back yeah. out of that, right? 
and you know it's kind of like he's like Mira might just want me because I'm the Duke but I don't even know if I'm the Duke like right like he gets a little pouty well and also like Patrick is very forthright one of my favorite moments in this whole book is when Patrick goes to him and goes to Aiden and says um, Mira's basically terrible you know that right and he's like yeah but what do you want from me like she's we're betrothed like I can't get out of it without ruining her without going you know there's a moment in the book where Mira says I could sue you for breach of contract if you end this I mean like again everyone it's the early 1800s and if you have a betrothal contract like that's it it's tough to get out of them here's now the the thing and again I think sharp readers are gonna like pick up the clues really fast I certainly guessed pretty much right away what maybe had happened, which is the reason he feels like he has to be with her is because they've had sex, right? So he deflowered her at some event and that, you know, he's a man of honor and he liked being with her and, you know, she's charming. It's not like he thinks it's a disaster until he meets Olwyn. But he also kind of can't understand why he, like, lost his mind with lust this one night with her. Yeah. Right? And as, Oh wait, but before we get yeah. dude, let me just finish the thing about Patrick. Right. Where he says, um, basically, so he's like, I'm gonna marry her, this woman. I can't figure out why this all happened, but it happened, and I'm gonna marry her. And then he says, And when she's my wife, you'll afford her the proper respect. And his brother says, I I will. But until that day comes and the vows are spoken, I'll speak the truth. So he's like, I'm just <laughs> yes. going to tell you she's terrible at every moment. And I was like, look, I stand it. An absolute king. This is how I wish everybody would be with me about my choices. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is like it, they're a great. They're really they're interesting. Pair and it's clear that Patrick was supposed to get a book. And I am so, yes. mad about it. Yeah. Anyway. So, yes. So go on. So they go back to his home and. He, they're well, you know, his family is, of course, thrilled to see him again. They thought he was dead. So it's like, right, like the prodigal son returns kind sure. of feeling. And Aiden told Olwen, great news, honey. I own a shipping company. You want to go to America? I'll put you on a boat to America. But when they get to the house, he says, she's going to stay with us till spring. Yeah, you can't go yet. The North Atlantic is just too treacherous for you to be traveling on. So just stick around. It'll be be totally fine. I'm going to marry this other lady while you live in my house. But it'll be fine. Right. And then it's really interesting because that's the part where, for me, it, like, the book feels like it sort of changes to, like, this really old school. Because now they're in, in like, a home. Right. Although it's interesting because they're, of course, the big, you know, estate or whatever. And Olwyn, of course, has – I mean – at one point, he's he's like, where are your clothes from? <laughs> and she says, <laughs> she explains that she did not have any clothes of her own. So she only had her mother's clothes that were left behind. And yeah. she had to essentially, like, sew things that looked like them. Like, she had to make. teach herself how to, mm-hmm. right? So everything she's wearing is just, like, I mean, Chaos. you know, she's dirty. She's, like, her clothes well, are gross. It's, like, he thinks when he wakes up. The first thought that he has is that he has time travel. Yes. To <laughs> right. like some right. other time. Right. When people what is she wore wearing? fur and whatever this lady's wearing. Right. Right. <laughs> and so she 
really gets to his the home, right, the estate, and instantaneously was like, I not only I will not stay here, I cannot stay here. Like this is I just can't. And so he takes her to this little house. Now, this is like where I guess like that nature part kind of kicks back in. Yeah. It's nestled in the woods and it's this little cottage and it's like the only place that he can sleep. I mean, I bet you love that. He can only sleep with her. Right. I and um, you know, his grandfather comes along. Also, there's a dog that she's afraid of, but he's never going to hurt her. And so they become friends. I mean, yes, the dog brings her like a stick one day and a bone the next day and content warning on the future of that dog, everybody. Um, So she and the thing is, is like she recognizes something special in the woods, something special in the cottage itself, right? Something special in the land that Mira never felt. And these are like the little things that like cause Aiden to realize that Olwyn is the right one for him, but he can't have her. And he falls in love with her early. Yeah. I mean, by like halfway through the book, by the midway point, he's like, I'm in love with her. Yes. Yeah. And which is like, again, a really bold choice. Yes. And I yeah. Well, and I think what it then is really an interesting thing is it's then fully really like external things that are keeping them apart, right? Well, fundamentally, it's this marriage that looms. Yes. And there are – so you get the sort of sense – so Mira's terrible, and you get the sense like when they think that he's dead, Mira's like, well, at least now I know who the heir is so I can set my cap, right? Right. I mean, she's not in it for any reason other than – no. You know, she wants the marriage to the sure. person with the title. And at one point he asks her and she's like, yeah, if you become – she's kind of honest about it. Yeah. Like, she's like, yeah, if you become Duke, that works for me. Mainly I just want to be a lady and I want to have some kids and I want to just like live this life. And you're the my best – you're the best chance – not chance, but you're just the best, you know, candidate out here. So he's had this kind of low-key suspicion that Mira's not right for him. But then Mira really goes hard to humiliate Olwyn at every turn, right? In the kind of, like, cutting mean girl way that only the queen bee, like, knows how to really... Olwyn doesn't really get it because, I mean, she gets that, obviously, she's being hurt. But so, like, there's a point where she's given, you know, his grandmother buys her a dress, and like, and it's this beauty. And of course, she has like the full glow look. She's never seen herself in a Listen, mirror. That's what I'm getting to. So she has never. Her father, in all the ways that he has tortured her, this might be the worst of it. Her father has convinced her that she is hideously ugly, and that that is why the the village is terrified of her, and that is why she will never leave him because. If she ever left, no one would ever marry anyone who looks like her. Now yeah. listen, everyone. <laughs> now listen. I bet we know, know that there are two ways this goes. One, she's only beautiful to him. And two is she's the fucking most beautiful person who has ever walked the face of the earth. But either way, this bitch has never seen herself in a mirror. <laughs> Which is wild to me. I mean, like, truly... 
as I as I texted to Jen earlier today, this book uses no breaks. What's it's all gas. <laughs> I think it's a, I, the writing of this book was fascinating to me because there's all these ways that we as the readers understand that the reason everyone thinks that she's a witch is because that's what her father has been telling people, right? Like the reason that her mother is gone is because her father – I actually for the whole book thought maybe his father – the father killed the wife, killed her mother, but he ran her off, right? So, you know, the, everything that Olwyn thinks about herself – I mean, he, she's basically been living with um, the gaslighter extraordinaire, right? But – Again, because she was had nothing and no one, she like knew herself and it didn't destroy her. Mm-hmm. And it's just and like his grandmother clocks that she's like she reminds me of me because she knows herself. Right. Uh, I will say that scene where she sees herself in the mirror for the first time could have gone a number of ways writing wise and really gone off the rails. But it's really charming. She sees herself in the mirror and she's like, she sticks her tongue out. She like looks at herself. And then she has this like delighted moment where she's like, I'm beautiful. I'm beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. It and really it is. frees her from all of that shit with her dad. And it's kind of amazing how this kind of awareness of the only part of her she did not know, right? She's so keenly aware of herself, like you said. Like, the knowledge of the package is the final piece to her just being strong enough to face whatever comes. And then shit goes down. I mean, like, she sees, she, that is her final, like, her final layer of armor, and then, like, it is about to go real south. So, Basically, back to Mira, she understands that she is, like, losing whatever hold she has on Aiden. And, again, I really respected the way – I and I think what I liked about this is, okay, people talk about miscommunication and how much they hate it as a trope. But clear communication can also sometimes not work, right? Yeah. And they are, like, dancing one night. The whole family is coming to celebrate his return. Oh, God. And it's like they're, they're going to do it on the dance floor. They're so into each other. But wait, before – either before or after he's dancing with Mira and he looks her straight in the face and was like, we don't even like each other. And you know, and I know that we should not be getting married. It's a mistake. And you're like, whoa, (laughs) right. He does not Mm -hmm. dance around it at all. And Mira then really comes to understand like, right. Like the threat that Olwyn is, it's not going to be as easily vanquished as these other things. So she decides to take a desperate gamble and, do for a second time the things she has done before. Now, remember, I told you, everybody guess what this is. She had given Aiden, like, Spanish fly, which is like a... Aphrodisiac. Yes, right? Exactly. That he, and, he, and you know, she essentially, and then... He can't figure out what's happened to him because well, he, he is coming undone. Yeah, well, he she had given it to him the first time, and this is when they had sex, and he had no clue. He just was kind of like... I just was really overcome. But the second time he starts to recognize and realize the symptoms, right? And he knows mm-hmm. that she has like – I mean he flat out says to her like, what did you give me? But the thing that is like so fascinating about this is – And it's basically like her dad's Viagra. Yeah. Is right. what she gave him. Yes. And she, she had like low-key kind of been like, you raped me. 
And then the tables are turned and he gets to say to her, like, no, I you you have raped me, essentially. I don't think he uses yeah. that exact words. No, he does. I, right? Oh, he doesn't say it about her. He says yes. to her, because it's quite startling yes. in the text. Yes, He says to her, tell me the truth. I'm, you know, three seconds from rape or murder. Like, he knows that she has, she is currently removing his consent. And he is livid about it. It was so like stark on page. Like you, I was like, "Oh, there, there, there is no, like, no, no mincing around with this I, whatsoever." Right? But here's what I was thinking about in that moment: was like, it almost is because it was written in 2008 that so many of these things could be sort of tackled head on. Right. There is the consent piece going back to at the very beginning when he's unconscious and Olwen like is looking at him and she kisses him on the lips and she like touches him. And the whole time she does it, you know, she does it in like little like little moments. And she says every time she apologizes, I'm so sorry, like I'm so sorry. And it's like she's so starved for human touch that like we are in some ways, like, made to forgive her in the moment. Um, But there is a very keen sense in the writing of that scene that what she is doing is wrong. Yes. Right? Like, she knows what she is doing is wrong. In 1985, that scene would not have been written that way. She would have kissed him or touched him, and it wouldn't have been – it would have just been whatever it was. Right? It's clear that what McNish is doing here is a very – it's overt. She's not like one day she woke up and was like, I'm going to write a gothic novel with like all this crazy stuff in it. She really is intentionally building a story that feels like those big old historicals in the sense – and I'll say one of – it's it's something that – now you rarely see writers do it's something that if you love this style of writing you could go to kerrigan burns high women series and see see it there you could go to elizabeth hoyt's early like the prince trilogy and maybe see it there but there is a grittiness and um an there's an old-fashioned vibe in these books that you don't, you just don't see in modern historicals. This week's episode of Fade of Mates is sponsored by Lumi Labs, creators of microdose gummies. We have talked at length about how much we love this product. You know, people use it for like a creative boost. I use it often um, if I have a little bit of insomnia. It is something that I found has really worked for me. Um, Other people might just want to like sort of get through the day and have that like sort of late energy boost. These microdose gummies are just a terrific way to like sort of experiment with like a tiny amount of THC to see if it helps you kind of manage whatever it is you're managing. And you can get microdose gummies nationwide delivered directly to your door. If you uh, use the code FADEDMATES, you can get free shipping and 30% off your first order at microdose.com. While you're there, you can also learn more about microdosing THC 
Links can be found in show notes, of course, as always, but that's microdose.com, code FADEDMATES for 30% off and free shipping directly to your door. Thanks, as always, to Lumi Labs for sponsoring the episode. Mira essentially blackmails Olwyn and says, you know, you're going to have to leave or else I'm going to, like, reveal all these family secrets. Right. I mean, this is the whole other thing. Mira has access to, like, a bunch of journals that will basically ruin Aiden's grandmother. Right. Who has been so kind and so wonderful and and so, you know, Mira – and Mira's just like – it's up to you, right? And this is like, again, this is the book about it's about family, family, right? Like, Olwen is, if the threat was to Olwen herself, she probably would have stayed and fought, right? Of course. But when the threat is to Aiden's grandmother or, and or you know, her perception of Aiden's family and their perfection mm-hmm. and their shininess, right? right. So because well, she- it's something she's never had. Right, exactly. So she's, you know, she's like, I'm out of here. And And so she decides to leave. But the thing that is also fascinating is she can feel her father coming, right? Right. Gothic again, right? Right. So the father, the the gothic kind of part, like kicks back in in a really hardcore way at the end, and it is about like again, like her connection, her like physical connection to like the land and this feeling like of like his evilness is a presence right. she can literally feel coming and she keeps trying to warn Aiden like listen he's coming and it's not going to be great and, and he's being that like great hero romance hero he's like don't worry about it it's fine it. it's yeah. going to be handled you don't have to fear you're here you're safe you're in my house you're in my arms you're in my bed right and then they do it so oh they have can we talk about the scene hand where they get married yes. when they like hand fast so we know it was Olwen is ready to go. Like we know she's going to take off, right? And they and he has refused to have sex with her to consummate right. until she is his, like until she is legally required to be there, right? So then in this night they're together and they decide that like in the old Welsh way they will hand fast. And it is so romantic it's so romantic i mean like with the with the like, silk yes, vines and the gold and, oh it's so romantic and you know we love romance novels but it is rare that i feel like oh that is like achingly romantic i was literally like i in look I've read a million romance novels. I think that's not an exaggeration. And I was complete. That scene where they marry each other. I mean, this man I live with would never. I mean, he just wouldn't. <laughs> I don't. I. You know what? I was. I was. I was kind of like I had this moment. Where I was like, I want to see this in more romance novels, but then I also don't because no, it would be done totally wrong. But this was perfect. It is a perfectly romantic moment and so then and then of course they do it and it's beautiful and so romantic and you're just like these two are perfect for each other and this man has loved her forever and she has loved him and now here they are and she's lonely through the whole book and now she's not lonely anymore and it's amazing and then they wake up because something terrible has happened and there's a lot of like hang on i'm not going to tell you what's happened until you see it which for a few pages which Okay, fine. And then they get outside, and spoiler alert, you guys, the dog is dead. The, the gran- dog's been the killed. Fa- her yeah. father, 
her father has found has seen her with this dog who loves her and who she loves she trusts like it's the first dog she's ever come to trust and to punish her and to basically send her a message which is you come back with me or i will do this to everything and everyone you love he has vivisected this dog and it is awful and she says somebody turned the patrick says to her you know who did this and she says i did it was me oh because she is so consumed by the fact that she has brought these ills upon this family. Yes. Well, and and that it's like that's the moment to me where it then flips right back to being a gothic, right? Like it's like all of the things about like bodies again and the land and right like her her um you know and Patrick and Aiden are like don't worry we're going to find him. There's we're no way he's going to loot us and they're out and you know they're like searching the woods and everywhere, right? And, the and it's whole really is, old fashioned. Like yes. she's at home. It feels medieval. Like she's yes. at home at the keep and this like yes. band of men have gone out to hunt their foe. Yes. And, and you know, and this is also not just any foe. This is her father, right? And yep. so he's like, what do you want me to do with him when I find him? And so meanwhile, Mira's like, doesn't matter. You promised to leave at 3 a.m. Let's go. And so she, Mira. right? So Olwyn essentially like runs away at the same time that they're kind of like, don't worry. They're not out. You know what I mean? Like everything kind of it's happens great. all at Listen, once. Listen, this yeah. is how old school historicals always took it. Like yeah. there's some external force that sends the hero away. Yes. And the heroine in that moment, in that like dark night of the soul moment is like, I have to leave. And yes. then he comes home and she's gone. Yeah. And he's like. I'm going to lose my mind. Right. Right. I could have – I would have enjoyed reading the scene where he came home. This also – the other thing that makes we this – love, We always want that scene, Jen. Oh, God, yes, always. Listen, if you're out there and you're writing anything where the hero returns and, and she finds gone, the heroine gone, please send not it to skip me. that scene. That is the scene that we are all in the business for. Yes, absolutely. And there's been all this – Interesting stuff with Aiden, like kind of like recommitting to his family. You know, Padraig was like, I know that you really love her because when you're with her, you're not like mine anymore. Like, you know, he sort of had this like kind of fight with his mother where he's been like a little bratty, but like everybody bands together. And I think the other way this book plays against it really went against a lot of my expectations because I was kind of like, yes, they're going to blame her. Right. Like, yes, they're going to say, like, you brought this danger to our home. And and instead, everyone's like, no, man, this is your, your father. Like, listen, this isn't your fault. Just sit tight. But the other way that I would I was going to say this book really felt old school is uh, the point of view switches within chapters and scenes. Mm-hmm. Right. Constantly. Like with no breaks at all. Just all of a sudden you're in the next person's point of view. And so we get Olwyn essentially, like, going off with Mira's, like, footman in a carriage. And, you know, they're going to take her away and put her on a ship to America. And her father has laid all these traps all over. And it is gruesome, right? Like, but any book that started – listen, I think you all have been listening to us long enough to know that any book that starts with dead bodies is going to end with dead bodies. That's just the way it works. I'm sorry it's if you don't know good that. Sense, everyone. Right? <laughs> Start as you mean to go on. 
And so her father has set these traps and it kills the men driving. And, you know, her father and his henchmen have been like hidden because they like covered themselves with horse dung. So like the dogs couldn't scent them. And, you know, he's like, you're coming back with me. And it's this, you know, we knew all along that it would have to be her versus her, her father right? again. Uh, you know, right? Same thing. Like that scene at the op- at the beginning has to play out again in its own way in order for her to get away. Like, and I respected very much that she needed to save herself, right? Yes. Well, because she had finally been given all of the tools she needed to believe that she could save herself, Right. And I think there is something very powerful about the fact that she had most of those tools. You are in that first scene where she escapes because she's worried about his health. She it is revealed that she I mean, she has a a fucking gun. She has a, she says at one point I had a pistol, a rifle and a knife. And it was like, but you still didn't believe you could do it. And now at the end. She has a pistol, a rifle, a knife, and love, and partnership, and family. And now she feels she can do it. I was also really fascinated about, I don't know, like the way, like, small threads were tied up. Mm-hmm. Does she kill her own father? I kind of can't remember, even though I finished reading it this morning. She doesn't kill her father. He brings, uh, Aiden brings 10 men with him on the hunt and then somebody shoots him from the trees or whatever and and he says i brought all these men so that you would never know who, who killed it. him that's right that's right. which is real romance here oh, shit i love it yes. a prince well it's interesting to me that i can't remember because it's actually not that really that important in some ways right it like i know she has to save herself but like kind of what happens to him and I guess I was grateful. I was thinking more about, like, the Mira situation, right? In an old school historical with an evil woman villain, yeah. she's going to be the one to get killed, right? Like, we talked about Joyce and Dreaming of You. Mm-hmm. But in this book, it is her father that gets killed, right? Mira is vanquished and sort of humiliated by the family in the sense that they all know what she did. Because... Olwyn, instead of kind of running away again, then decides to tell everybody, like, right? Like, once she. This is what happened. She says, Mira has these journals. Yes. They will ruin Camille, Aiden's grandmother. And that is that. And Camille is the one who then reveals, right? Like, actually, things didn't quite work out that way. Your grand, you know, my husband, your grandfather, and I also married ourselves in that little cottage right like her you know it just ends up being really and then it turns out that the 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 drunk who worked for her father kind of has these last pieces of information about what really happened to mm-hmm. uh, to Olwyn's mother right so there's like a lot of smart ways in which like the those tertiary characters kind of give us pieces of information that help the whole thing kind of fit together. Yes. Right? And I feel like that's the other thing. Like, it's a real masterclass in how you use those extra characters to deliver parts of the plot, right? Like, everybody knows a little bit of something. And by the end, when it's all revealed, we can finally all have the same – we all have the full picture, 
right? And I liked it a whole lot better than, for example, I mean, there was a letter from her mother, but like this guy essentially had it. And, you know, like this sense of um, this is how it is in real life. People withhold information, right? And then they leverage it when they can get something out of it. And that guy is basically like, I want some money and some horses and some whiskey and I want out of here. And Aiden's like, okay, that sounds great. I just want to be with my wife. What I love, and again, what is very modern about this book and what is very modern about this hero, despite this wacky, full bananas of a plot, right, is that in that moment, he he says, I'm so sorry to her. Like he's – he understands how – hard this is how he understands that there is grief here that cannot be articulated there is grief here that maybe feels wrong like how could you mourn this monster who has tormented you your whole life you know but he he's such a there is this there this is a hero who feels feelings and it's a hero who has felt feelings since the very beginning because we didn't talk about this but when patrick gets to the morgue, he is delivered or he and he meets the captain of the ship or whatever. He is delivered oh, a yeah. letter. Yes. That Aiden wrote like when on he his was deathbed on right? the sh- on the ship when he was dying. And he says, you know, everyone else has died around me. And so I can only expect that I am to die as well. And he says, like, I love you to his family. He oh yeah reveals so much of his emotional Yes. Life in that letter. And again, a hero who is not old school, set down in a book that is so old school. And I and I did find myself wondering, like, is this the gothic like influence on this book? Right. Because if the gothic part of this is like that. They have to band together and, you know, she has to, like, defeat the evil after her or whatever. To have him be, like, some hardcore, you know, I don't know, like, alpha Mm. asshole or whatever would not really service, like, that plot. Because he would take over. Right? He would take over. And it has to be that she – Right. I mean, I'm fascinated by – the thing I'm fascinated by in this book is that she – understands like the nature of evil in the world and yes. and its potential to harm them in a way that he does not. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I just kept coming back to like Alec Kincaid, hero of Julie Garwood's The Bride, would have taken his men into the woods and returned with that man's corpse like draped over his saddle. And you're absolutely right. I mean, this is that is just not the way this book was to end. And maybe it's gothic. I don't actually know. I don't I don't know if that's because if it's a, the genre or if it's again just like a more modern take on this. What I love Listen, I read this book. The first time I read this book, I was in a clapboard motel in the wilds of Rhode Island, like literally in the middle of nowhere on the <laughs> on the water yeah. in Rhode Island. And something terrible had happened in the world when I read this. It might be it might have been an election of sorts. And I like this book for some reason sounded like one that I think maybe somebody pitched it to me as like 
you know, his body is robbed by is, you know, robbed from a grave and it turns out, oops, he's alive and also a duke. Like, yes, put it in my veins. So and I think the joy that this book gave me is it is. It is everything I love about books prior to the year 2000 with characters who are more modern. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, too. I guess I just feel like, look, we've talked off and on about, like, historicals versus contemporaries and, you know, kind of how we're feeling. But, like, there is – you just can't put that much meat on the bone in a contemporary it feels like or people aren't i don't know if you can't as much as it's just like out of style right now yeah and reading this book i was it was so like pleasantly dense like i was like oh i am really like it's 400 pages and you're just really like you know at one point i was like how am i only halfway through this book 800 fucking things have happened yeah <laughs> Lord right? scoundrel style right yeah and so i mean i think that was the other thing i just really i really liked as an experience is really feeling like here was a book that was like okay there's layers and layers and yeah. layers and layers of plot no right this woman swung for the fences with this book and i mean i'm i'm this is not me jesting. I am sad she never wrote anything else because I I feel like she – nobody writes this book and doesn't have more books in them. Right. Right. Well, who knows? Who knows? If you're out there, Tracy McNish, thank you. This was a really fun ride. I don't know. I mean, I feel like reading in general is really like taking me away But this book really delivered a real, like, reading experience, right? Like, I, I I mean, and I think details of this will stick with me for a long time. And some of them are kind of like the gruesome details, like, you know, like the traps and the way, like, the poor coachman died and the dog, right? Things like that. But also just, I don't know, like, this is a, a, there's a real, um, I don't know. I keep saying like, right, like a book that starts off with a dead body that's not really dead. It's just so physical. This book is very physical. And I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? The things I didn't love about this book were kind of the like, and again, I think it's just like a function of time. There's a bit of like, she's not like other girls. Right. Sure. There was a bit of, you know what I mean? Like at one point she's like, you'll make me fat. And I was like, but. Oh, yeah. I mean, somebody on uh, Instagram maybe or Twitter, I can't remember. But one of you out there read this book a few weeks ago and you were like, hey, did anybody notice that the heroine's super thin? Yeah. (laughs) Right. My God. Yes. She's super thin. I mean. And yes. I kept being like, well, she was being starved. I feel like when you're reading a book from that time period, you're just like, okay, that's that's what it is. And look, God, these TikToks about women just like drinking water. I mean, it's not like we aren't a culture that is constantly dealing with, right, like the way that we feel about our bodies. So I just had to like let that go as I was reading it. But I definitely noticed it. There's like a like really – no turning away from really bad things in this book. This book does not pull any punches. People get murdered. A dog gets mm-hmm. killed. There's talk of like rape. No. It's really raw. The full banana. Yeah, I loved it. I had a great time reading it. I really did. 
I mean, it does make me want to go. She has another, like I said, a trilogy. Yeah. And I would like to read that, I think. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. Um, yeah, it's a real delight. This book is a... Uh, as of, let's see, hang on, let me just make sure, but I think it's still on sale. Oh, yeah, it was like two bucks. Yep. Little gift there from the gods. Yeah. If you're still, if you haven't read it and you're thinking about it, but you're not sure, it's $2 on Amazon right now in ebook. And I mean, really, $2? I want That's, my $2. It's worth it. Yes, it really it's is. It's worth it. And it, unfortunately, I think because of us, has an estimated wait of 126 days at the Brooklyn Public Library. So sorry about that, everyone. Sure. I do. I understand. I mean, that's our impact on the world. And a great cover. Yeah, it's fun. It's really fun. I'm that curious. Hot. I'm curious about if that's its original cover. I felt if is it Kensington Zebra? It I feel like those covers were Jen, like there's no way this I guess got, got rejacketed. Yeah. I mean it's just funny because I was like, those old, old Kensington zebra covers are like, woo! Mm-hmm. There's like unicorns and shit on them. Well, it's not old, old though. Yeah, no, I know. I keep saying 2008. It was published September 25th, 2009. See? From Zebra, go. Kensington Zebra. Listen, a delight. A delight. Uh, what do we have for everyone? Well, I have a fun announcement about what our next read along will be. Oh. I don't even know. Tell me, too. You do, too, know, because it will be with some special guests. It's not going to be for a while. I don't, oh, yeah. I don't think it's going to be until summer, oh, so pace yourself. Oh, tell everyone what they want. <laughs> Wait, maybe there will be one in between. I I don't know. We don't We've do these very often. We've only done two this, this season. Maybe we could squeeze another one in, but tell everybody what they're, what they're, what's happening. Y'all, I was like, Sarah, we should read Twilight. And <gasps> invite Christina and Lauren. <laughs> yes. And I said, that sounds terrific because I've never read Twilight. Yes. So I here's what I would say, everybody. You, if you have ne- also never read Twilight, you're going to read Twilight. And if you are feeling so inclined to the beginning of the next book and you'll know when to stop. Like you can just come to a hard stop <laughs> at a point where you're like, oh, yeah, this is where I'm going to stop. Um, just because okay. if you've never read it, and I actually am really fascinated to see what it's like on a screen. It was, I will talk about it when we get here. I'm sure I have before, like that moment in New Moon. You have, because I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, it's, ama- it's amazing. And like a, on a page of a book that you turn. And if you right now are out there going like, why Twilight? The answer is because Twilight launched a thousand ships from 2009 till now in terms of. Yeah. Everything. Temporary romance. So Twilight was 2006, wasn't it? Yes, but I feel like those fix be- started becoming books oh, right, around 2009, right. 2010. Yeah, exactly. So anyway. Yeah, you would be hard-pressed to find like a top-selling contemporary romance from a certain period of time, from like 2010 to 2012, that isn't, that was not in some way impacted by Twilight. Yeah, sorry. It is t- 2007. So, yes, this is, it was, you know, like a bomb went off and we all went in a big Twilight tsunami. And I just think it's also kind of really fun, like, sometimes to revisit a book that is, I mean, I don't know, it's kind of like when we did Fifty Shades, right? Like, let's go ahead and go go back and 
get in the jump in the Wayback Machine. So yeah, we've bandied about other potential read-alongs. Um, Christina and Lauren are going on tour for their new book, True Love Experience, through May. And so that is why we probably won't get to Twilight until June. So if we decide to slip one in, um, we'll let you know. Beforehand, we'll let you know. Thank you to you all for joining us. And thanks to Lumi Labs and Liza Snow for sponsoring the episode this week. If you are out there and you are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can do that. Uh, Go visit our website, fatamates.net, and click on advertising, and it'll tell you all the glorious ways that you can uh, advertise on the podcast. We think we do a pretty good job, and uh, our readers do a pretty good job of reading books that we talk about. I am Sarah McLean. I'm here with my friend Jen Prokop. You can find us online at fatedmates.net, on Twitter at fatedmates, on Instagram at fatedmatespod, and on Tumblr at faded-mates. Don't forget that after this episode, you can stay tuned for a sneak peek of Liza Snow's Obedience, a full cast audiobook complete with original music and sound effects that you will delight in. Have a great one, everybody. Prologue, Cassandra. The rope smelled like honey. Not cheap, overly processed honey, lifeless and left with no aromatics. This was a special smell I imagined apiarists lived for. Pungent. It made you feel like you were walking through a meadow in springtime, soothing and warm. The sensation was a sharp contrast to what I felt minutes earlier. The pounding of my heart, threatening to rip from my body at any moment, and the rapid succession of my breaths. Somehow, I managed to stay conscious. Yes, breathe, little papillon. Little butterfly. I heard his voice in my ear, a coarse, gravelly whisper with hints of an accent. If we were alone in a dark alley, I might have thought he was there to kill me. But there was something comforting about his disembodied tone. It felt like he was reaching out in a dream to guide me someplace safe. The idea was slightly amusing, given the fact that he had tightened a rope against my skin. My arms were bound behind my back so firmly, it was as if they no longer existed on my body. Lengths of twisted red jute stretched around my chest, my flesh completely exposed, aside from the blue cotton undergarments I wore. It felt smooth yet firm against me. I had no understanding of what was being done. I only experienced the sensations of being bound by him. The gentle yanks when the rope was knotted, the drag of it across my bare skin. After a while, the pressure around me became almost comforting. I sank into it my breaths deep and slow, time suspended while he worked. I found myself so transfixed that it seemed as if I'd gone to some ethereal place, far from the room we were in. There were times I'd forgotten there was an audience in front of us, the sounds of the audience fading. It was only him and me, sharing an experience I'd never imagined having. And fini. This time... His whisper bloomed, extending across the room. My mind came back into focus, noticing all of the eyes watching me. 
It was difficult to remain focused on anything other than the sensation of the ropes against my skin. While the lower half of my body remained free, my upper body was stationary. The only thing I could do was surrender. I had no choice, which made being watched the least of my concerns. Instead, it was the idea of my mercilessness, one of the most deliriously submissive feelings I'd ever felt in my life. How does it feel, little papillon? I felt the warmth of his voice against the flesh of my ear, and it sent a small shiver down my spine. I feel alive. Chapter 1. Chandler. Six months earlier. One sentence. One string of words could be enough to destroy a person. Another could save them. I never believed those words would be one and the same and come from a man like my father. You'll be attending the auditions. Gabriel Moreau loomed opposite me at my office desk. I was the spitting image of my father, as much as I hated to admit it, given his thick, dark brown hair, mostly gray now, green eyes, and booming height, a sharp jawline with an intense personality to complement it. The Moreaus were something to behold. I gave them that much. Absolutely not. My voice rang across the length of my office, far more pronounced than I had intended. It was nestled in the corner of a hallway of the academy, where I occasionally assisted with teaching and other academic duties. Given my father owned the establishment, the position came with the territory. It was clear by how empty the room was that I spent little time there. There was nothing outside of a handful of old, worn furniture and a bookshelf with a few books inside and the atrocious artwork that had come permanently affixed in the space. Several pictures of clowns in the most obscure poses and jarring colors. I fucking hated clowns. It wasn't a question, my father said, his gaze unwavering. He leaned forward, his green eyes locked onto mine. You're well aware of the responsibilities you have to this school, and to me. There's no discussion here. The last bit was said in a sinister manner. The man knew what kind of hold he had on me and used it to his every advantage. I... My voice started off loud, but I managed to calm myself. My head was thudding, the room spinning, and a bit too bright for my liking. The annoying flicker of the fluorescent lighting above was starting to get to me. I haven't helped with student auditions in years. I wouldn't have any idea what I was doing. Your colleague Thomas has fallen ill, my father explained. I knew who he was referring to. Thomas Little was one of my oldest friends, a fellow performer and a teacher at the academy. And I had known he had fallen ill. His wife Abigail had taken him to the hospital a few days prior for a bad case of meningitis. There had been a day or two we were worried he wasn't going to pull out of it, but luckily he had. It left him unable to resume his regular duties. What I hadn't expected was my father finding it necessary to make me his replacement. Why are you so hell-bent on me being there? There's a slew of qualified professionals at this school who would be willing to be on the committee. Hell, couldn't you do it with three people? There's always been a four-person committee. You're familiar with Abigail, Sebastian, and Jean, my father replied. And the instant I heard Jean, I scowled. I had heard enough of the damn woman's name the last few months, and I was hoping to get a break from it after finalizing our divorce yesterday. Besides, it would be good to have someone with your specific, uh, skill set to be involved. Jean. 
I felt sick saying your name out loud, is a silk aerialist too. And as much as I hate to admit it, a gifted one. She's equally qualified to be on the committee, maybe more so since she has been for years, unlike me. Talking about her sent further shooting pains through my skull. I regretted all the drinks I'd consumed last night after I left the lawyer's office. It had been a bittersweet celebration. Relieved the months of hell were finally over, but still saddened after everything we'd been through. True, my father replied. I hated that he hadn't once looked away from me. He was locked in on me like a laser, watching my every move. The man analyzed everything I said and did like I was a rat in a cage. I'd been a rat in a cage my entire life. But let's say I'd like you to be my personal eyes and ears. You'd be doing me a favor. What is that supposed to mean? I asked, feeling somewhat confused by what he'd said. My father shifted his stance a bit, leaning so he could put his hands on my desk, coming closer to me. So much so that I rolled the chair backward. I leaned back a bit, uncomfortable with his proximity. I have a vested interest in the audition process this year, he replied matter-of-factly. That's all you need to concern yourself with. That and being prompt to the auditions next week. Don't show up reeking of sweaty bourbon like you do right now. The man wasn't wrong. Probably looked and smelled like shit. But he was one to talk, wafting in a nasty odor of cigar smoke. I hated the smell of it ever since I was a little kid. It always made me nauseous, which wasn't helping my hangover presently. I realize you may have some unresolved issues with Gene as of late, which may be part of your little act of defiance right now. He leaned in again. I tried to stay stationary this time, holding my ground. I didn't want to move much more because every time I did, my head spun and my stomach churned. But I'll tell you something your grandfather used to tell me. The mention of Elliot Moreau sent another wave of nausea through me. If there was one person I despised more than my father, it was my grandfather. I hadn't seen my grandfather since I was a teenager, but I was grateful when I heard he had passed away several years ago. Even still, he left catastrophic damage in his wake. I knew the words coming next. Mieux va Pierre que rompre. Adapt and survive. Despite my heritage, my knowledge of the French language had slipped over the last decade or two, but I would never forget that saying. My grandfather had said it for as long as I could remember. My heart was racing and my fist lay clenched underneath the desk. It was all I could do not to act, to not fight him. To an outsider, it would seem ridiculous. I was faculty at the school and I had responsibilities. Attending an audition wasn't anything different than being forced to monitor a school function. It was typical of the employees who worked there. But this favor, what he was asking of me, was more than that. Gabriel knew it. I knew it. Fine, I said after a few long breaths. I'll be at the auditions. The moment the words left my mouth, my father's gaze left me. He drummed his fingers on the desk for a second, turned, opened my office door, and shut it behind him. The moment he left, I fell back into the chair I'd been sitting in, breathing a sigh of relief. I collapsed beside my desk, barely making it to my garbage as a wave of nausea hit me. My head pounded relentlessly until I managed to catch my breath again. I sat back, leaning against my desk, legs sprawled across the floor. I stared at one of the hideous pictures of the clown on my wall. It was befitting art for Le Revue Academie, as it had first been dubbed when it opened 50 years ago. 
It was now referred to as the Dreamers Academy, the world-class institution for circus arts. The French name my grandfather had chosen had become a distant memory, only recognized by those more immersed in its history. The eyes of the clown on the opposite wall stared down at me, haunting and hollow. His face twisted in a smile some might have found endearing or entertaining, but it only seemed sinister to me. All these pictures in my office were like mirages of the many faces of Gabriel Moreau, the clown disguised in paint, putting on a performance for the world. No one truly knew what lay underneath the facade. What the fuck did I agree to? I whispered to no one, burying my face in my hands. Tremblay Hall sat in the center of the Dreamers Academy campus in the small northeastern town of Acrofort, New York. The building was the centerpiece of the entire school and the oldest structure built almost a century ago. The establishments surrounding it were constructed later. The original building had been purchased by Elliot Moreau based on its French Gothic architectural style. The vaulted ceilings, flying buttresses, infamous gargoyles, and ornate decorations were all part of the aesthetic. The other facilities had been built following the same example, so the entire academy seemed like you were stepping into mid-16th century France. While I had always admired the architecture and the lush, tree-filled grounds the school sat on, my favorite part of the academy was the room in the center of the cross-shaped Tremblay Hall. Soleil Theater, or the Sun Theater, was a theater in the rounds where the entire audience surrounded the stage. The style was chosen to resemble most traditional circus theater setups. Though I had spent the last two decades of my life performing underneath the canopies of circus tents, Soleil Theater had a charm like no other performance arena I had ever been in. Stained glass windows wrapped around four sections of the walls. Beautiful arches and towering ceilings were sunken and tiled with intricate pastel patterns. You could spend hours staring at the room, taking it all in. I'd done it so many times over the years. It was the perfect place to showcase some of the world's most prestigious circus talent. Today, however, had been an exception. Out of the few dozen students who had already auditioned, hardly any had shown enough talent to inspire me. They'd been average, cut out for state fair shows or small city performances. Nothing elite. Nothing our academy stood for. We were the eyes of the circus world, the premier academy for performing arts. Many students flocked to the Dreamers Academy purely because it housed some of the best instructors in the country, most of whom also worked at the neighboring Cirque du Lys, including the colleagues sitting with me on the audition panel that morning. An elite group of four world-renowned circus performers. This meant we couldn't take anyone, and certainly none of these marginally acceptable students auditioning. What moron was reviewing these applications? I muttered under my breath thumbing through a stack of paperwork from the latest student to leave the theater. Today, we had been focused on two specialties, acrobatics and aerial arts. The acrobatics had been the earlier part of the day, leaving the aerialists for the afternoon. After our lunch break, the theater staff switched out the equipment for the aerialists. Poles, the lira, otherwise known as aerial hoops, hammocks, straps, and my personal favorite and specialty, the silks, had been stationed in the center of the stage, along with protective mats along the floor. The last gentleman who had performed primarily with the silks had been somewhat decent. Still, it was nothing I couldn't teach a freshman high schooler with an ounce of athletic ability in a few lessons. It was far from exceptional, far from what I was looking for. That moron was me. 
a voice said from beside me, apparently having heard my muttering. Sebastian Taylor was presently looking down at his own paperwork from the last audition, scrutinizing something in his resume. His short, brownish-blonde hair was styled a bit messily, and his warm brown eyes were flitting back and forth behind a pair of forest green reader glasses hanging off his nose. I liked him. Jonathan James, catchy name, too. He had some promise, I think. Just needs a bit of coaching. Sebastian had been assisting at the Dreamers Academy and a ringmaster with my grandmother Lily's circus since I'd started performing decades ago. He'd been around for so long that he had been great friends with my grandmother while she'd still been alive. I frowned. I don't think we're letting students in based on your affinity with their names, Sebastian. I stacked the kids' paperwork to my right in the large pile of those who had already attended today. I had written a resounding no on the top with a red pen. A disappointed sigh came from the other side of me. When I glanced over, the curly, red-haired woman with light blue eyes was smiling, shaking her head. Sebastian's right, you know. Abigail Little replied with her usual warm tone. You're being a little too harsh on all these poor kids. They're nervous as can be. Don't you remember how nervous you were when you first started out? Or was it too long ago? Sebastian chimed in. There was a laugh on the other side of Abigail, and I noticed my ex-wife, Jean Tremblay, was laughing and shaking her head. I shot Sebastian a look, knowing full well he was aware I didn't like people mentioning my age, a fact I'm sure Jean was taking pleasure in. I was well aware I had gotten into my forties. I didn't need further reminding. Oh, I get to nerve. Sebastian grinned at me. You're never going to shake this foul mood about having to fill in for Thomas, are you? The mention of Thomas and my required attendance at this event brought my mind back to my father and our conversation the previous week. He said I was supposed to be his eyes and ears. I'd been so focused on trying to do the task at hand, selecting worthy talent, I'd almost forgotten my father's desire to have me here. It had likely been for a larger purpose than just to replace Thomas. How is Thomas doing? I decided not to dwell on my thoughts for too long, turning my attention to his wife, Abigail, sitting beside me. She was busy finishing a few notes on her papers before putting them into her organized stack. Abigail glanced at me, frowning a bit. Still not feeling the best, I'm afraid. I feel so bad for him. It's been almost two weeks now. Thomas had made it home safe from the hospital, able to be in his own bed in familiar surroundings. I hadn't been able to visit him since he'd made it home. He's on the mend, at least. The doctor says another week or so, and he should be back to normal. He's already a mess. You all know how he is. Wanting to get back on his feet. Always trying to keep up with you. Abigail smiled at me. Thomas, Abigail, and I had been friends for over a decade now. They'd come from Las Vegas, Nevada to work for Cirque du Lys and teach at the Academy. The pair were two of the nicest, gentlest souls on the face of the planet. Not the types you'd expect to perform fire and danger acts for a living. A fact which generally blew minds. Even with Thomas and I having wildly different career choices, we still competed with one another anyway over something or other. It was a friendly competition, of course, but a death match nonetheless. Abigail pulled another stack of papers forward, and I noticed when she did, much to my relief, it was the final set of paperwork in the pile we'd gone through. At least after this, we'd be through for the day, only to do it again for the next two days. Oh, I know this act! Abigail exclaimed, and I watched her eyes grow wide, and a smile spread across her face. I thought she was auditioning today. Thomas will be sad he doesn't get to see her. Abby turned her focus on me, still beaming. 
You're going to love her, Chandler. She's been a big fan of yours since she was little. I turned my focus back to the final paperwork in front of me, pulling it into view. Sebastian had done the same beside me and at the far end of the table, so had Jean. I thumbed through the pages, glancing over her resume, educational background, and some performances and shows she'd been in over the last few years. Truthfully, it was nothing spectacular. She'd attended a state school in Nevada for her undergraduate degree and participated in a handful of off-the-strip performances near Las Vegas. Nothing memorable. For a moment, I thought to question Abigail. I assumed her familiarity with the applicant had swayed her judgment a little. Still, her performance, not the words on these pages, would be the deciding factor. As I was about to turn and call for the last auditioner to enter, I noticed someone walk straight past the desks set up in the audience facing the aerial equipment. A young woman in her 20s. She focused straight ahead and was making every effort to look calm and composed, but it was clear to see she was trying very hard. I could see her breathing and bits of perspiration on her face. She had likely been pacing up and down the halls outside. The woman's honey-brown hair had been pulled up in a neat ponytail. She walked up the steps onto the stage, taking her place in front of the equipment and turning to face us. Abigail gave a friendly wave, and the young woman's stoic, rigid demeanor softened. She gave a little wave back and shook her body a bit, likely trying to relieve herself of some of the nerves she was feeling. Go ahead and tell us your name and a little about yourself. Jean had been the one to speak, and I glanced at her. She had tucked some of her blonde hair behind her ear, and her blue eyes honed in on the young woman on the stage. Like myself, Jean had taken a vested interest in the auditions, as she was also a silk aerialist. She would teach these students in the fall. My name is Cassandra. Cassandra Blackstone. The woman replied, nodding at my ex-wife. I'm 25 years old from Las Vegas, Nevada. I graduated this spring with honors. I'm here to audition for the aerialist program. Blackstone. The name sounded familiar. When I thought about it, I realized it was the famous Blackstone Magician Act. A show I'd seen several times over the years and admired. I wondered if she was somehow related to the husband and wife duo. Why do you want to become an aerialist? Jean asked, placing her arms on the desk and leaning forward. I focused back on Cassandra in time to see her eyes shift to look straight at me. Though I couldn't make them out distinctly... They appeared hazel and were big and wide, accentuating her face. Because of Chandler Morrow. She replied simply. The way she was looking at me was terribly distracting. I found I couldn't look away from her. A little chill washing over me. I've followed your performances since I was in middle school. Ever since I saw you do a kamikaze drop at your traveling show in San Francisco, it's all I ever wanted to do. To perform the move as flawlessly as you did in the show you did it with. I realized she'd mentioned the circus I'd been a part of for the last two decades. My grandfather, Elliot, bought the circus for my grandmother, Lily, short after he'd acquired the Dreamers Academy. Cirque du Lys? I found myself asking Cassandra, and she nodded. The kamikaze drop she'd been referring to, and the specific show it had occurred at, had been interesting, to say the least. My ability to do one of the most difficult aerial silk drops was well known, but that particular show had been a special case. At the last minute, Sebastian and I decided to change up some of the choreography. The entire sequence had been different for that one case. Not everyone knew that information, nor cared to. She'd surprised me, to say the least. I wasn't quite sure how it made me feel. Anyway, that's why I'm here, Cassandra said, her voice a little shaky. 
She was clearly still nervous, and talking to me had made her more so. She turned her focus from me, looking beside me at Abigail. How is Thomas doing? He's on the mend. Abigail replied, smiling softly at her. He's so sorry to have missed this. We'll tell him about it later when you're over. Cassandra nodded, smiling back at her softly. It was the first time I'd seen her smile since she arrived, and it was hard to look away. Even with how small it had been, it lit up her face. Gave a warmth I found myself compelled by for some reason. Her smile disappeared quickly when Jean spoke again. You can start whenever you'd like. She told her, and Jean leaned back in her seat when I glanced over. The rest of my colleagues had settled in, too. I turned back to the stage, watching Cassandra nod and head to the silks. There had been several pairs to choose from, but Cassandra selected a set of deep maroon-colored silks. They hung about 70 feet into the air. I watched the young woman's complete focus hone in on the fabric and her entire being settled. There was something about how her stance had changed, the way her movements became more fluid and relaxed, that said she had shifted into performance mode. The fear she'd shown vanished. There was no one else in the room with her, nothing but her and the fabric. Music began in the background, started by one of the stagehands through the room's speakers. Acoustically, the Soleil Theater was built for music, in addition to its mesmerizing aesthetics. The sounds reverberated in every direction from the speakers set up around the theater, allowing complete immersion in the song. After a few measures of the light classical piece, the beautiful string notes dancing into the room, I realized I recognized the work. The song I knew from many years ago, composed by George Frederick Handel, it was the opening aria from the opera Circe. While I'd never been particularly fond of the opera, it was something Jean and I had gone to several times a year throughout our two-decade-long relationship because her mother had been an opera singer. It was the reason I recognized the song, a choice made by Jean for a show we performed in our early 20s, if memory served me right. One of Cirque du Lys's summer showcases. While it had been Jean's choice of song, the entire act had been composed by us together, and to this day... It was perhaps one of my favorite performances. When Cassandra began, every single reason why it had been flooded back to me. The young woman circled the silks for a moment and then began her ascent on the fabrics, twisting herself up them as the last few measures of the song played before the famous Cecilia Bartoli's beautiful mezzo-soprano voice joined the orchestra. As the lyrics called out into the theater circling around us, so did Cassandra from a high above. I watched as she executed the first drop with absolute precision, like I'd been in a dream watching the performance from all those years ago, all over again. Watched her twist and circle, dropping down into a movement known as the Rainbow Marchenko, similar to an upside-down split, something Jean was famous for. While I was so used to technicalities, having lived and breathed them for decades, something shifted inside me. The names, the little nuances of each of the steps to execute Cassandra's routine, disappeared in my mind. Replaced by feelings of warmth, genuine excitement, and longing. That rush, those all-consuming emotions. While I could have focused more on all the subtle things she was doing differently, things only a genuinely seasoned artist would have the capacity to do, I found myself more wrapped up in the way it was making me feel so much adoration. Cassandra ascended again as the opera singer's voice drew into the higher registers, preparing for the last sequence. The performance was crescendoing, and while I knew what was coming, I was excited to see how she'd do it differently. The dramatic set of falls and twists that would bring her back to the stage. 
I was waiting for the double forward roll, which was one of my favorite aerial silk moves. The performer dived through the fabric as they rolled. It was a breathtaking spectacle, if performed right. All four of us in the audience held our breath, watching her as she prepared. My attention never left her, listening to the lyrics, waiting for the one moment when the singing dropped out for a second, only to triumphantly bellow again, her cue. Cassandra was high up in the silks waiting. She had been looking out into the audience, looking at me specifically, or perhaps I imagined things. Something flickered across her face, her concentration dissipating. I immediately stood up from my seat. As I straightened, I received an unpleasant reminder of the previous weekend rehearsals at Cirque du Lys. Pain shot up and down my left leg, radiating from my knee. I felt the throbbing from underneath the brace I'd been wearing around it, which hadn't done a damn bit of good helping with the pain. My attention drew away from the throbbing, having very few seconds to spare before Cassandra would act. I shouted into the room, clapping my hands together. Stop the music! When I called, the ache in my ribs reminded me of the fact they too were bruised and it hurt quite a bit. I ignored it, waving at Sebastian to get out of my way. My friend shifted from his seat, allowing me to slip out around the desk we'd been sitting at. I made my way into the aisle leading up to the stage. Chandler, what on earth? I heard Jean call out, but I disregarded her. Meanwhile, the music had stopped, and when my attention focused on the silks, I watched Cassandra slowly descend the fabrics and back to the floor. By the time I had hobbled my way down the aisle and up the steps to meet her, she'd gotten down and was waiting for me. The walking I had done had been a painful reminder of how much I likely needed to rest my knee at this point, but I hadn't cared. You hesitated, I said as I walked across the stage toward Cassandra. The closer I got to her, the more distinct her eyes became. They were, in fact, a fascinating shade of hazel, favoring more on the green side with flecks of brown and grays that became very predominant by the time I'd gotten in front of her. Right before the final sequence, I, I saw it. The, the Salta, you left the room. Why? Cassandra's big bright eyes met mine head on. I... She looked at a loss for words, somewhat embarrassed. I waited, letting her to try to formulate what she wanted to say. Still, nothing came, and eventually, she turned away from me. I moved closer to her, closing some of the distance between us. I'm not trying to embarrass you, I explained. I took hold of one of the two maroon silks flapping lightly with the breeze of the air conditioning in the room, wrapping it around my hand. Of course, the state of my knee made it impossible for me to do anything like she'd done in those last few minutes of her performance. Still, I, I could at least coach her. I want to know what you were thinking. You left the room. All the confidence you had the entire performance vanished. It can't happen, Cassandra. Not in moments like that when you're up in the silks. Not ever. I'd surprised myself by calling her by her name. It fell from my lips effortlessly, sounding as beautiful as the singer's voice had when it rang through the theater a minute earlier. I didn't focus on her for long, too concerned about bringing her attention to the danger of her mishap. My knee was a painful reminder, still throbbing in the brace. I glanced down at it for a second, trying to refrain from wincing, though it had become quite painful. Instead, I returned my focus to Cassandra, gave her every ounce of my attention, she followed my gaze, looking down at my knee, then back up at me. Did that happen to you? She asked in a candid way, like we were friends, and she was genuinely curious about what had happened to me. It was strange to hear her ask me such a thing, and had she been any other student auditioning today, I likely would have told her it was none of her business. Her head tilted a little in a distractingly endearing way. Instead, I surprised myself. Yes, I replied, nodding. 
Cassandra's gaze softened, somewhat empathetic. While I was aware my colleagues could hear everything I was saying, I was still wholly focused on Cassandra. The conversation was meant for her and me. We were the only two in the room at the moment. We were the only two who mattered. I unfortunately let my thoughts get the best of me, I replied honestly, and it's not something you do, not when you're in that kind of position. Understand. Cassandra nodded, and I watched her bite the edge of her lip for a moment. Felt the strangest lurch in my stomach at the sight of it. I didn't focus on it long, trying to pay attention to what she said next. I lost my nerve, she admitted, again sounding embarrassed. The salto, the double forward roll, it's something I'm still trying to perfect, honestly. I've practiced it a million times. I had it down, but the move is one of your favorite moves. The comment made me smile a fraction. I nodded, waiting for her to continue. I wasn't expecting you to be here. Wasn't expecting to have to perform it in front of you. Cassandra shook her head. The slight smile of mine widened a bit, unable to help myself be a little flattered, and I let out a laugh. Well, if it's any consolation, I wasn't planning on being here. I happened to be forced into it. He's been bitching all day long. Jean called out across the theater, and for a half second, I remembered there were other people in the room watching us. I waved her off, still focused on Cassandra. We shouldn't matter, I told her flatly. Your only concern right now is your performance, not your audience. Forget your audience. Forget me. It's only you and those silks. You're hard to forget. Cassandra replied almost instantly, those hazel eyes piercing into mine. That same strange feeling that had overcome me several times in the minutes since she entered this theater washed over me again. It felt foreign, like nothing I'd felt in an extraordinarily long time. I wasn't sure what she meant. It was my favorite silk performance of yours and Jean's I ever witnessed. I didn't want to disappoint either of you. I took another step closer to her. There was only a few feet of distance between us now. I could have almost reached out and touched her, had I wanted. All of a sudden, I was greeted with a very distinct smell. It took me a moment to place, but there had been no mistaking it. Citrus. Oranges. It was alluring. I wanted to draw closer. Instead, I stopped abruptly, holding myself in place, my hands still wrapped around the silk. While I was flattered by the sentiment of her words, I was also concerned about her nerves. It wasn't a favorable sign at an audition. Natural for some, but this amount was concerning. And there was absolutely no room for it when you were 60 feet in the air, dangling by a single piece of fabric. For a minute, I found myself scratching at the scruff on my face, lost in thought. My attention drifted away from her, looking up into the silks again, trying to figure out how to help her. I could feel her eyes on me. Eventually, the idea came to me, and I stared back at her. Tell me the name of your best friend, the person you trust more than anyone. Cassandra studied me, looking slightly confused, but she answered. Alexandra. Ah, well, let's go with Alexander. My words seemed to puzzle her more, but I continued my thought. Just think of Alexandra when you find yourself focused on me. She's here with you instead. Maybe a little more facial hair, a bit taller. A smile broke on Cassandra's face and she let out a laugh. Once again, I was caught off guard this time, completely wrapped up in the sound. It was hard to break away from, but when I heard it... I felt satisfied, like I'd found a way to get through to her and break off her nerves. You're definitely much taller, she agreed. Okay, I nodded, taking a step back and raveling my hands from the fabric I'd been holding onto. Trying to ignore the incessant throbbing of my knee was a reminder of how meaningful this conversation was with her. She needed 100% focus. 
In any case, you're performing for her right now. That's all. Don't worry about me anymore. Cassandra nodded, looking far more relaxed than she had been. The smile still lingered a little on her face. She'd taken hold of the silk I'd let go of, wrapping it around her other hand so she was locked in. Are you ready to try again? I asked, and Cassandra's eyes fell on me once more. She nodded. Good. Remember the key to the salto. You'll have all the momentum you need. Focus on the fluidity of the motion. Cassandra nodded, and I felt satisfied. I glanced at her for a second before I turned away, walking across the stage. Instead of leaving it entirely, I only walked to the steps and turned back around. Meanwhile, Cassandra resumed her place back at the silks. A few moments later, whoever had been in charge of the music had brought it back enough measures to allow Cassandra to resume her ascent up the silks before the final set of movements. When she reached the height she had been at before, nearly 60 feet into the air, I watched her take slow, steady breaths, waiting calmly for her cue. I knew without a shadow of a doubt she'd return to the mindset she'd started in, entirely in tune with what she was doing. Cecile's voice boomed into the room, and Cassandra let go. I watched her fly down, diving into the fabric, rolling in beautiful loops that appeared far more effortless than they actually were. She captured the material after the salto, twisting into the last few drops and spins before her feet hit the floor as the song faded from the room. My colleagues immediately rose to their feet, all three clapping. I joined in alongside them, and I couldn't help but offer a small smile and a nod when Cassandra glanced at me again. I took in the delighted look on her face, unable to help myself but take satisfaction in it, too. Thank you. Cassandra called out before I walked back down the stage steps and resumed my place at the desk among my fellow colleagues. All were busy taking notes while Cassandra waited patiently on the stage. I had yet to bother to look back at her paperwork. My entire attention focused on her. I waited until the others had finished, and Sebastian spoke. Did you have anything else you wanted to ask? <clears throat> After a beat, I realized he had been talking to me. I glanced at him a moment and shook my head. We've seen everything we need to see, I said, looking back at Cassandra, speaking to her. I tried my best to keep my tone calm and neutral, despite how my heart had picked up a little in my chest. I was doing my best to steady my excited breathing. Cassandra nodded at my response. Thank you all, she said, bowing her head a little before she walked off the stage. She paused momentarily as she made her way past the desk we'd been sitting at. I watched her as she locked on Abigail, offering a small smile. See you in a few hours? See you soon, sweetheart. Abigail replied, nodding. Cassandra's eyes flitted for one brief second past Abigail to me again. We looked at each other, a fleeting moment which felt like it lasted much longer than it actually had. She broke away, walking out of the room without another word. The moment she left, I felt my breathing start to steady. I leaned back into my chair, glancing at each of my colleagues, who all seemed lost in thought. She did well, Jean said from the far end of the table. Some of those movements were impressive. I feel like she got them from somewhere. I had done my best to avoid interacting with Jean for the better part of the day, but I couldn't help myself. Jean, it was from our tour decades ago. It's been my favorite performance for years. We practiced the routine for months. Hell, you... You picked out the damn song, the aria from your favorite opera. Jean stared at me quizzically for a moment. I picked it. I nodded. Funny, I don't really remember it. I sighed, shaking my head. I promise you. While I was annoyed with her, I didn't feel like arguing, still too wound up by the last audition to care. Okay, you two, let's not get into it right now. Sebastian reminded us, bringing me back to the room and to the matter. 
What do we think, yay or nay? I got up from my seat, trying my best to ignore the shooting pains in my knee. I managed to get around Sebastian without him moving and made my way in front to face the rest of them. My hands fell down on the desk, and I stared Sebastian directly in the eyes, unwavering. If she isn't here in the fall, I'll quit. This program, the circus, my career will be a joke. Like to that much, huh? Sebastian said, raising a brow at me. She's very talented. Abigail agreed, smiling at me. See, I knew you'd like her. I've known her since she was little. Thomas and I were great friends with her parents. She's always had an affinity for the silks. I think she'd do really well here. Chandler has always had a thing for brunettes. Jean retorted, rolling her eyes. I glanced at her, feeling annoyed. But if I'll be teaching her, I agree. She has potential. I think she'd do well. She just has to get over her nerves. It's settled then. I replied, looking back down at the paperwork on the desk and then back to each of my colleagues landing on Sebastian last. Cassandra Blackstone will be attending in the fall. Chapter 2. Cassandra. Present Day. The rhythmic sound of rain against a window woke me from a pleasant dream I'd been having. The instant my eyes began to flutter, it was fading. It must have been a good dream, because I could still feel the warmth washing over me. Good dreams didn't happen often for me, not in a long time. So I laid there and enjoyed it for a minute. I stared up at the white popcorn ceiling, at the Seen Better Day ceiling fan wobbling a bit too much for comfort as it spun. Watching the blades go round and round for a few moments as I tried to get my bearings. When I looked over, glancing around the small bedroom, my eyes began to focus. The room was smaller than some people's closets, I imagined, and almost so sparse you'd think no one lived there. A twin mattress sat on the hardwood floor, one I'd found at a yard sale close by. A small selection of clothes hung on a metal shower curtain rod that extended across the adjacent wall, by the window. A well-loved laptop and a collection of textbooks sat near the clothes, along with a shabby brown canvas sling bag. Beside the bed was a phone charger taped up a few times since its purchase to prevent the wires from coming apart, and a phone attached to it that was probably around before I'd started high school. The tapping sound caught my focus again. When I looked outside the singular window across from me, I noticed it was raining heavily and looked ominous and gloomy. The branches of a tall oak tree were obscuring much of the view, but I made out enough of it. I looked back down at my phone. Beside it, there were two frames— as worn and as aged as pretty much every single thing in this room. But outside of perhaps the contents in my sling bag, they were the most important possessions of mine. In one frame was an old photo of my parents, Oliver and Catherine Blackstone, in front of the theater that showcased their magic show for decades. I was three or four in the picture, my hair still a mess of curls which hadn't loosened yet, perched on my father's shoulders, looking as content as could be, my parents smiling at each other. It was the one photo I had left of them. Beside the old photo of my family was another keepsake held dear for over a decade now. An old, yellowing playbill with an autograph scribbled across it. Attached to a photo of me in 8th grade, standing in front of a giant circus tent, my arms stretched in the air, smiling broadly. To my left, a short, raven-haired girl with her arm wrapped around my waist, smiling too. Alexandra Ledger, who adamantly insisted on being called Alex, and I had been friends since elementary school. 
The picture had been the last time I'd seen her until college years later. The last day we'd spent together. The day before my 13th birthday. The day before my parents died. The day I saw Chandler Moreau in the flesh. I had shaken his hand after he signed a copy of the playbill. I still remember how excited I had been, looking up at him as he towered over me. Mesmerized by the talent pouring from him with everything he did, he was the master of his craft in every sense of the word. Chandler had performed on the traveling stage for his circus, Cirque du Lys, alongside his wife, Jean Tremblay. That performance had been when I decided, without a shadow of a doubt, I would perform beside him one day. Someday, he would be my teacher. Though my confidence had wavered from time to time over the decade I waited for those days to come, they had finally arrived. Somehow, the audition committee had liked me so much, they'd given me a full scholarship. Soon, I'd be able to work alongside the one person I dreamed about performing with for over half my life. Before my parents passed away, whenever things were particularly difficult, my mother would always quote her favorite author, Pema Chodron, to me. In my mind, to this day, I could still hear every word as clearly as if she had been speaking them in front of me. Nothing ever goes away until it teaches us what we need to know. Staring at the playbill, I lost myself in the daydream of the happy day with my parents, with Alex, watching that amazing man who I'd been lucky enough to meet again at my audition six months prior. I was jerked back to reality when my phone chirped from the floor. I looked down, noticing a text message flash across the beat-up screen. Good luck today. See you tonight. It was from Alex. I'd barely registered what she said before I noticed the time on my phone and felt all the blood drain from my face. I dashed to my feet in a mad panic. There was only 20 minutes until I was expected at Tremblay Hall at the Dreamers Academy. There was no way I'd make it the several blocks to campus and to the circus history class where I'd be Jean Tremblay's teaching assistant in so little time. But I would try like hell anyway. The last person I want to make a bad impression on was the woman who would be my mentor for the semester. A woman who, while not as talented as Chandler Moreau was, wasn't far behind. She had been his partner for decades. I wanted her to like me. I had a bad feeling that if I was late, it would be more difficult. Somehow, I managed to throw on one of the three blouses I owned, a pair of slacks, and some slip-on shoes, pulling my hair into the neatest ponytail I could manage while gathering my things. I made it out the door, sling bag thrown over my shoulder, with ten minutes to spare before the class began. Under the small awning of the apartment building, I stared out into the torrential downpour, opening the umbrella I'd had since early high school. It rattled in the wind as I lifted it over my head, and I stepped out onto the sidewalk heading swiftly down the road. My neighbor, an older man with gray hair and beady brown eyes, watched me intently while he smoked on his porch. He reminded me of someone I didn't want to think about, so I tried not to look at him for long. The small stretch of Acrefort I lived in, in what was mostly a pleasant little town in upstate New York, just happened to be the shadiest part. But it had been all I could afford, that tiny studio apartment. As luck would have it, I managed to make good time cutting across the roads leading up to the Dreamers Academy. The green light seemed to be in my favor, and when I checked my phone, it seemed like I was still going to make it. Then I heard a snap. I watched as the six- or seven-year-old ratty-as-hell umbrella ripped upward, shredding into several pieces at once. The rain pelted over me in sheets, drenched me within seconds. 
I was only two or three minutes away from getting inside Tremblay Hall and out of this mess of a morning. Of course, out of all the days for this to happen, it had to be today. I sprinted as fast as I could across the outskirts of the academy campus, dodging other students and faculty walking around, sheltered by their non-shitty umbrellas, feeling like a sponge drowning in a full sink of water. Tremblay Hall towered in front of me, a beautiful old building. I'd read all about it in textbooks, and I'd seen it at my auditions months before. In my mad dash through the rain, I couldn't help but admire it, taking in all the intricacies. Several of the signature gargoyles loomed over the corners of the buildings, watching over the campus. The minute I stumbled into the building behind a small group of other students, the cold indoor air greeted me, and I realized how absolutely drenched I was. Every single inch of me dripped all over the elegant tiled floors. Next to the doors I'd entered was a large garbage can, into which I aggressively tossed the shitty and now broken umbrella. After, I fumbled in my sling bag, which luckily was waterproofed enough to protect my belongings inside, grabbing my phone. I was five minutes late. Not enough time to go to the bathroom and try to make myself the least bit presentable. So much for a good impression. I took off again down the hallway, admiring the variety of art hanging on the walls as I ran. Beautiful paintings and artwork on display, depicting various places in Ackerfort and many old photographs and trinkets from circus shows from all over the world. A person could spend hours looking at everything in this building. Whoever had designed it had taken great care in making it stunning. Unfortunately, I didn't have hours. I skidded to a stop outside the doors to the classroom I was supposed to be in. I took a deep breath, deciding to not waste any more time, tugged the heavy wooden windowless door to the classroom open. It was quiet when I entered. I released the door, and someone slipped behind me, catching it. That thing will slam so loud you'll scare the kids in Rosewood Commons. Rosewood was a student building on one end of the Dreamers Academy campus, opposite the direction I'd come from. The cafeteria and the student union were housed there. When I turned my gaze toward the voice talking softly to me, I met the brown eyes of a lanky-looking kid with brown, wavy hair a little on the longer side. He was smiling at me, a curious expression on his face. I am notoriously late for everything. I learned about the door the hard way. Thank you, I whispered back to him. He had a charming smile, warm and inviting. My voice stayed low, doing my best not to distract Jean at the other side of the room. She was my supervisor, after all, and my mentor for the semester. I'm Henry, he said, holding out his hand. Cassie, I replied, taking his hand and returning his smile. Looks like it started raining pretty hard out there. Henry noted, eyeing me up and down. I watched him reach over and snag a jacket that had been laying across the arm of the chair he'd been sitting in. Take this, it gets chilly in there. Thanks, I said taking his jacket graciously. I better get down there, she's expecting me. I'm the teaching assistant this sem- Henry looked confused for a second, but before I had an opportunity to inquire as to why, there was a loud clearing of a throat from down the aisle of the classroom interrupting me. When it stopped- I noticed it had become eerily quiet. Eventually, I turned toward the direction the sound had come from and nearly fell flat on my face in surprise. Standing at the front of the room, dressed in a fitted, deep green button-down matching the color of his eyes, looking dead at me, was Chandler Moreau. Professor Moreau, I suppose he was called here. 
But in my mind, he'd always be the performer with Cirque du Lys I'd followed half my life. He was certainly not Jean Tremblay, who I had been expecting. His thick brown hair was styled neatly, his tall frame looming. The expression on his face was fierce and piercing straight into me. He was clearly annoyed, a drastic change from his demeanor the last time I'd interacted with him at my audition. Can I help you? I remembered the sound of his voice when he spoke. A calm, slightly coarse and deep sound, with just a hint of an accent I couldn't place. The type of voice demanding your entire attention. I swallowed deeply, holding my eye contact with him. I... I think I might be in the wrong classroom. I realized the minute I said it. It had to have been what happened. I'm supposed to be with Professor Tremblay, History of the Circus. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Professor Tremblay is taking a leave of absence. Chandler said, his facial expression and tone filled with annoyance. You're in the right classroom. I'll be teaching history this semester. However, I suggest you make it a habit of not arriving late. Your peers aren't paying good money to listen to me lecture on tardiness. I'm sorry, I replied, starting to take steps forward, as difficult as it was due to the distracting nature of his gaze on me. I adjusted my sling bag on my damp shoulder, still clutching Henry's jacket he'd let me borrow. It was starting to feel cold and uncomfortable, and I didn't think I could be more gracious to Henry for his kindness to me. I looked back over my shoulder at him briefly, both to force myself to stop staring at Chandler, and also to try to silently thank him. As I was saying... Chandler started speaking again, just as I'd made it to the end of the aisleway. As soon as I set my bag on the desk at the front of the room, he stopped speaking again. When I looked over, Chandler's intense green eyes were zeroed in on me. His nostrils flared in annoyance, eyes narrowed. Have you not garnered enough attention this morning, Ms. Blackstone, I said, trying to disregard his snide comment. Cassandra Blackstone, I'm the teaching assistant for this class. Jean's teaching assistant. I guess you're assistant now. I'd started rambling, trying to catch myself. I'm sorry, I didn't know where you wanted me to go exactly. I noticed a flicker on Chandler's face for a second. His disgruntled look softened, like he'd come to some sort of realization. I wondered if he remembered who I was. When it disappeared seconds later, I assumed he didn't. I didn't really have a chance to ponder on it, as Chandler continued to glare at me for whatever reason. At that point, I'd started to feel my own little surge of annoyance with the man. Even if I had interrupted him, there hadn't been a need for him to act the way he was. Like he was deriving some small bit of pleasure by trying to torment me a little. Chandler returned to his lecture, and I wrapped myself in Henry's jacket. It was entirely too big for me, but I didn't care. I turned my ponytail into a bun on top of my head. Then, before I got too far behind, I darted over to the whiteboard Chandler had been standing in front of. Most college professors were using PowerPoint presentations, but it seemed Chandler was old-fashioned. I didn't question him, uncapping a marker and drawing my focus to his voice. Circus Maximus will be our topic of discussion this week. When I looked over my shoulder, I watched Chandler stroll across the length of the classroom. I couldn't help but notice the injury he'd been suffering from at my audition had to have healed because he moved uninhibited and gracefully. I could teach an entire class on Circus Maximus, but for the purpose of this introductory course, we'll be doing a brief overview. I scribbled Circus Maximus across the blank whiteboard just before he spoke again. Can anyone tell me where the stadium was built and in what era? The room was dead quiet, the roughly two dozen students within it all unmoving. 
A hand shot into the air, and I realized it had been Henry's. Chandler nodded to him, and Henry said confidently, projecting into the room, It was built in ancient Rome, in the Old Kingdom era, the largest stadium ever built there. Chandler nodded again, not looking the least bit phased. Didn't compliment him when he'd known the answer. I wrote Henry's response across the whiteboard. I had learned this information in my undergraduate coursework. All of the students in the classroom were mostly freshmen and sophomores, so it was new to them. While Chandler might not have been impressed with Henry's knowledge the first day of class, I was proud of him. The ancient city of Rome was built on seven hills. Between two of those hills, Aventine and Palatine, was the Valley of Mutica, where horse races were held. Circus Maximus started there as a simple hippodrome. When Chandler didn't elaborate on the term he used, I decided to put it on the whiteboard anyway. A theater or performance venue. I remember learning about Circus Maximus for the first time from one of my grandmother's books on circus history. Far more accurate and less drab than your textbooks now. I paused taking notes then, realizing he'd started drifting off into his own little world on a completely irrelevant tangent. Somehow, the next 40 minutes of the class were filled with meaningless anecdotes and stories about Chandler and his experiences. Practically nothing relevant to the actual lecture, Circus Maximus. The bell rang, and by the rush of students getting up from their seats, it signaled the end of the class. When I looked back at the whiteboard behind me, I realized I hadn't written a single thing since Henry had answered Chandler's question. The rest of the lecture was useless to the room full of students. A mini-memoir by a man who was apparently far more self-centered than I had realized. There was a student or two who stayed to ask Chandler questions. Henry had given me a little wave before he left the room, and I assumed I'd give his jacket back the next time I saw him at class. My gaze turned back to Chandler, still interacting with the students. I hated the way he was acting, like the idea of their presence was literally the most dreadful thing he could be doing with his time. Between his arrogant posture, the exasperated tone he took, and the annoyed look on his face, it was difficult not to march right up to him and give him a piece of my mind. I was appalled by the way he was treating these students. They were still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, eager to learn because of their desire to stay behind and talk to him. The wonderful memory I had, the interaction between us on Soleil's stage at my audition, was evaporating with each second I watched him. I was getting so annoyed. I forced myself to focus on gathering my belongings and erasing the whiteboard. When the last student left, Chandler went back to his collection of things, opposite of where I'd placed my own. I watched him for a moment before I approached him. He must have heard me coming by the squeak of my still damp canvas flats across the hardwood floors. Chandler's head jerked over his shoulder to look at me. You're still here, Miss Blackstone? Is there something I can do for you? I did my best to offer a forced, small smile before I spoke. I was just wondering if there was anything you needed from me before I left. I sat the marker down beside his bag on the table he'd been standing next to. Chandler turned to face me, scratching at his well-manicured beard, which I normally would have found attractive with its flecks of gray interspersed with the thick, dark browns matching his hair. It showed his age, and I thought it made him look attractive and refined. At least, I had thought so at my audition. Now he just looked like a pompous ass. Let's see. Chandler started. I hated that. Despite how unbelievably irritated I was by his very being, his gaze had a dangerous hold on me. It gave me chills having nothing to do with still being a little damp from the rain. Perhaps first and foremost, you could arrive on time from now on. That would be a sufficient starting point. I sucked in a deep breath. 
You already publicly chastised me, I reminded him, feeling my face twist despite every effort in trying to hide my annoyance. I was meaning more... You might also consider showing up to my classroom not looking like a drowned rat. Every single fiber of my being was seething. He was annoying the living hell out of me, and I didn't think I could tolerate it much longer. There are such things as umbrellas. I had a fucking umbrella. I started, realizing I'd just cursed at him. It immediately jerked me back to reality, and I grew rigid, reeling myself back in. You know what? My voice went as calm as I could make it. I don't want to argue with you about this. Yes, I know I should come to class more presentable. I'll make every effort to do so. Trust me, this is not the way I intended my day to go. It was so true, on a variety of different levels. Did you plan to spend a daydreaming then? The man was relentless. Chandler nodded behind me, and when I looked over my shoulder, I realized he was referring to the whiteboard I'd cleaned off a minute earlier. You spent most of the class staring idly into space. I'm surprised you noticed, you self-absorbed shit. He'd crossed the line again, but I decided to keep myself in check this time. Couldn't believe I was having these thoughts about a man I'd idolized for so many years. He was making me feel so conflicted. I didn't think it was necessary for the students to take endless notes about your whole life history, Professor Morrow. Perhaps, I emphasized the word, using the same condescending tone he'd used a minute earlier. You might consider actually lecturing about Circus Maximus next time instead of rambling on for an hour about the myriad of reasons you chose to study aerial silks. Most of those reasons I'd known by heart, but I couldn't have possibly cared less. I wondered why I felt emboldened to speak my mind so freely with him. It certainly hadn't been one of my brightest decisions. Chandler's mouth hung slightly open, staring at me for a few moments. I'd definitely caught him off guard, and as much satisfaction as it had brought me... I also knew there would be repercussions. It had been reckless to go toe-to-toe with him in this little sparring session our conversation had turned into. I needed this job desperately, and to lose it on the first day of classes, I absolutely couldn't. Surprisingly, when Chandler recovered, he resumed picking up his things, throwing his bag over his shoulder before he returned his focus on me. His facial expression had become calm, like he'd been completely unfazed by my belligerent behavior. It had been ignored. Don't be late for your private lessons, he said flatly. Turning away from me, he walked up the aisle. I wondered bleakly if I'd have to deal with more of this nonsense with him. In the span of a one-hour class period, I felt deflated. He'd ruined every shred of excitement I'd had at the thought of getting to work with him. Realizing what he'd said confirmed he did know who I was after all. I spun around and watched as he walked away. I'm not usually late, I called after him, attempting to defend myself. Whatever you say, Miss Blackstone, Chandler replied, without looking back, just before he'd slipped out the door.